Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero. Hey. Hey. How goes? Oh, it's okay. You heard Fauci's in isolation? I did, yeah. What do you think about that? I would have blown my mind if no one in the administration got sick since they've been standing together and not wearing masks and all that for mm-hmm. on such a regular basis for so long. I mean, it's actually kind of the perfect example of this sort of exceptional exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. It's a level of vanity that has endangered now his staff and will endanger many others. Mm-hmm. Um... One thing we should say before we get into what we're going to talk about today is this week we're trying something new, which is we're not going to talk every day. We're going to talk today, Wednesday, and Friday. We're hoping that people will stick with us. Right, we're hoping, but you if you have any thoughts on this new schedule one way or the other, you you're feel free to write us at socialdistance@theatlantic.com. When we last talked, you had a homework assignment. Uh, I did not watch The Godfather. Yeah. So I was <laughs> Did correct. you watch The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3? Yeah. You yeah. did? Was it good? Um, y- you know, it was of its time. I wouldn't consider it to be a, like, a favorite, but I'm not a, a cinemaphile. It's like a reminder of back a time before um, movies had to have three dimensions. What do you mean? Like, you could just be, a, like, a romping thrill ride. Like, they, they stole a subway car, and it's run away, and they're going to—are the hostages going to live or die? And and I know there's some nuance to, like, the cinematography of it or whatever, but there was no—like, the bad guys are bad. The good guys, Right, they good. don't have some, like, tragic backstory or, or redeeming quality that, like, complicates your hatred of them or whatever. Yeah, there was no mm-hmm. sort of thing of, like, well, they hijacked the train because they needed to pay for their cancer treatment. So right. the, the villain in the story is the medical system? No. <laughs> they just love cash. They love yeah. cash and violence, and they don't care about feelings. Right. Yeah. So I did not watch The Godfather this weekend, but I did spend the weekend uh, thinking a lot about the story about Ahmad Arbery in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I want to, Adam Serwer, who writes on all of the complicated moral failures of America's history, wrote on this. And I was hoping that Adam could talk us through what this story means especially in a time like this. Right. Yeah. He has a a great story in The Atlantic and shows just how it initially maybe seemed like this thing that's unrelated to what's happening right now with the pandemic, but in fact is one and the same about this picture of how we value life in America. And Mm -hmm. he puts these things more eloquently than pretty much anyone out there today. So let's call him. That'd be great. Hey, this is Adam. Hey, Adam. Hey, Adam. How are you guys doing? We're all right. How are you? I'm pretty good. I mean, you know, under the circumstances. Yeah. Under the circumstances, yeah. 
Adam, first of all, I'm just curious, what are things like in, in San Antonio right now? I would say that, uh, you know, almost everyone I see who is going to work is wearing a mask, for example, and almost mm -hmm. everyone I see who is sort of out for a stroll, running, biking, walking their dog is probably not wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've, I've seen like some pretty big signs of quarantine fatigue. You know, I think a lot of people, I mean, just from my own interviews, with the, there's a lot of people who are really struggling right now in terms of uh, needing food. Right. Um, I talked to, a, a, you know, a, a couple dozen people at the San Antonio Food Bank uh, a few weeks ago, and, and it was almost almost all the people I spoke to had never been to a food bank before. And they mm -hmm. were also people who um, had had jobs like they, they had like they were mechanics, they were sanitation workers, they were home health care workers. It was people who, who basically had jobs who had just been totally knocked out by the coronavirus effect on the economy. Right. Well, for people who aren't familiar with the Arbery case, uh, can you just lay out the, the basics? Sure. The basics are that Ahmaud Arbery, who is a black man in Georgia, was shot by two men who believed, who, who saw him running through the neighborhood and believed that he was up to no good and pursued him. Arbery, when he saw two men with guns, and you could see the video online, although it, I, it's not really for the faint of heart. What happens in the video is that these men are sort of already have sort of gotten in front of Arbery and, and, and have their guns out. And as he approaches them, he tries to wrest the firearm from one of the other men who shoots him. And, you know, the initial response of the Georgia district attorney uh, for the area was that there was nothing wrong here because they were making a quote unquote citizen's arrest. And so they were justified in self-defense because after all, he had tried to buy the gun. Now this, I feel like this doesn't make sense to the average person because after all, what happened was they saw a guy running and they armed themselves and, and stalked him. Um, so at that point, it's the person who is unarmed and who is being chased by two armed men who's really in the position of being able to act in self-defense. Um, the facts of this case are very similar to the Trayvon Martin case in which right. the uh, defendant was acquitted, you know, in large part because of the, the terms of the, the stand your ground statute, which mm -hmm. essentially, you know, from a, from a legal perspective, it is much easier to get acquitted of murder if you shoot the victim and they die understand your ground rules because then you don't have a witness to your behavior. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, which creates a kind of perverse incentive here, I should say. But in this case, of course, there was a video, the video rather than diffusing the tension over the case caused a national outrage, which then caused a different district attorney to bring the case to a grand jury and arrest the two suspects um, who, in, in case it's not clear, who were, were two white men, a father and son. Right. So no one was arrested for it. It wasn't charged as a crime for two months until the video came out. Right. And, 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 and the district attorney in the area determined that everything that happened was fine. There was no criminal anything involved here that was worth investigating. It should be said that that same district attorney twice tried to prosecute a black grandmother for helping uh, someone who had just registered and was voting for the first time, helping her use a voting machine. Um, mm -hmm. So this is not a particularly lenient prosecutor. He just has what you might describe as uh, an idiosyncratic view of what counts as a crime and what doesn't. Right. So you know how we've been talking about like sort of the, the before times? Mm -hmm. As if in mid-March sort of the old world ended and we came into the new world, which is coronavirus world. Mm -hmm. And every 
story, you know, that I read is somehow inflected by it in some way. You know, it's just like you're kind of constantly thinking about it because it's affecting everything. When this story became sort of national news about Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, the surreality of the world we've been living in was like shattered. Um, My question for you is how are you thinking about this? Here's the thing. If you, uh, if you have a train track, right, and it goes, and like train tracks go to specific destinations. If you put a brand new Acela train on the train track, it might get to one place or another faster. It might be more comfortable than the old train that you used to have, but it's only going to go to the same places that it used to go to. And when you look at the world that we're, the, the sort of coronavirus world, it is entirely shaped by the structure of the before world. So right. that's, you know, so all the racial inequities that were in the before world, they are naturally being reproduced in the coronavirus world because the structure of our society was built along those tracks and you could put a new train on it. You know, you can send everybody $1,200. You can try to put out $600 million for, for small businesses but because the train is, is going to go to the same destinations, you're going to have like 90% of black and Hispanic small businesses being de- denied loans. You're going to have a disproportionate number of workers in service and healthcare industries uh, being black and Hispanic people. Um, you know, the, the, the train is going to go to the same destination, no matter how new and shiny it is, because that's where the tracks are built to go. Right. If this shooting and coronavirus, would you say they're d- different trains on the same track? I would say this is an example of a train going down the same track that was built. So tell me what the track looks like. What are the tracks? How are they built? I mean, so this is a big part of the piece that I just wrote for The Atlantic about how the racial disparities and coronavirus sickness and deaths have influenced the response among elite Republicans, particularly Fox News and the Trump administration. Um, And the sort of general metaphor for it is is something that a philosopher named Charles Mills came up with, and he calls it the racial contract. Now, the, the most... Um, the racial contract. The racial contract is a kind of thing that underlies the social contract. And, and one of the early examples that I can give to you about this is the Declaration of Independence, which we have since interpreted to say everyone is created equal. But at the time, what it really meant was landed white men with property are, are all created equal. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe some of the founders, you know, at the time aspired to that larger sense, but the collective meaning both, you know, in the way that American society was constructed really referred to white men with property. And mm-hmm. so there's a kind of unspoken way of looking at the rules that understands tacitly that the rules apply to white people differently than they apply to everyone else. And you mm-hmm. can sort of see that in the example of these two prosecutions or in the eyes of this prosecutor where a black woman helping someone vote is a crime and two white men stalking and gunning down a black man who they suspect of committing a crime is not a crime at all and not worth an indictment. Um, And so, you know, the the racial contract, as I see it, is just sort of a, it is the way that uh, racism can function in a society without explicit terms defining things as racial. Those are the tracks, sort of invisible tracks. I wouldn't say that they're invisible. I would say that they are unacknowledged for obvious Mm -hmm. political reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, And also because that's, you know, that's the only way something like this can function in a society that, again, is based off the idea that we're all created equal. You can't explicitly say, oh, but but, but these people don't count. 
if you want to say that you believe in this universalist idea, which is at the core of American identity. So when you hear news of this shooting in Georgia, you see the same pattern being played out as it was before and the same pattern that's being played out in coronavirus too. Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you somehow woke up Emmett Till after all these decades and you explain to him that a prosecutor in Georgia who prosecuted a black woman for voting also refused to prosecute two white men for killing a black man, um, he would say, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Um, you know, so there's a kind of dark consistency to particularly in instances of violence that are based on a perception uh, that a black person has created a threat that must be neutralized with lethal force. These things are very consistent. I would say a couple of things have changed. I think that, uh, you know, white Americans, by and large, regardless of their political orientation, are much more willing to see the way that this works than they have been in the past. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, th- there's some there's some resistance to it now among conservative commentators to, you know, the initial characterization of events. But mm-hmm. I would say that almost every prominent conservative pundit who watched that video and who read about the circumstances of the case thought, well, this is this is actually an injustice. Um, right. I think that obviously gets more difficult when police are involved because of conservative ideological orientation towards police. But I think two things have happened. I think people are increasingly in denial about certain things that are obviously racialized for partisan reasons, the president being one of them. But I think that another thing is that when those incidents do not have clear ideological stakes, it is actually much easier for white people across the political spectrum to identify something that is a racial injustice because it looks so familiar to moments in our history that we have come to think of as shameful collectively, you know, even if that doesn't apply to everyone. Adam, how are you seeing the racial contract play out in terms of coronavirus? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the way that they're t- they talk about, you know, workers and meatpacking plants or the way that they're talking about uh, states where the racial disparity has been extremely lopsided, there's just, I think that there's just a sense that for a very small number of people, I say that because when you look at the polling, it's actually striking across incomes, across backgrounds, how much support there is for the restrictions and for the government being aggressive to fix the problem, which it is not doing right now. Um, but I think for the White House and for Fox News, you, you saw a, a pretty big tone shift after the news about the racial disparities came out, which was basically, oh, this isn't really our problem. This is not affecting the people that, that we consider our people. And I think that this is not a dynamic that's particularly unique to the coronavirus. I think that it applies to a lot of serious social problems. I mean, if you go back to 2010, when the Democrats were trying to pass the Affordable Care Act, uh, one of Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck's talking points against it was they, they were calling it reparations. Um, so th- th- there's this, this whole idea of saying, oh, this is those people's problem and not your problem. I think in some ways th- it can manifest as an almost unconscious mechanism. It's not going to hurt me. It's going to hurt them. So what's the big deal? But I think sometimes it is conscious. And I wouldn't be able to tell you because I'm not a mind reader. I wouldn't be able to tell you, you know, where that happened here. But I think, you know, part of the strength of the racial contract as a concept is that it works by people implicitly understanding the rules and by, as I said earlier, by the train follows the track, regardless of how new the train is. And so people are just acting out the implicit terms of the racial contract without even thinking about the fact that that's what they're doing. 
And there's this element of noting the racial disparities and who's going to be most likely to ha- to contract the disease, to have severe outcomes or, or to die from it. And then also we're seeing in New York and elsewhere is, you know, there um, just on Friday they said 80% of the summonses that have been issued for social distancing violations uh, were given to people who were black or Latino. And right. we've also clearly seen instances of packed, like primarily uh, white neighborhoods that were not being cracked down on. And so there's some element there of just, if there's opportunism, there's not just seeing like some people are going to be hurt by this if we let it run its course and don't act, but also there's a chance here that the state intervention could be used to further play out these disparities or to enact justice in ways that perpetuate this status quo? Well, I think, you know, one of the things I say is that the the racial contract shapes the thinking of people who are liberal and conservative like, and New York is a great example of this, because Bill de Blasio, you know, he's a liberal Democrat, and he's not only a liberal Democrat, but he, he won the Democratic primary in part because of this striking ad. He, he essentially at the time stop and frisk was like a big issue in the city because, it, it, you know, you were hearing about things, statistics that were just ridiculous. Like the fact that one year the police actually did more stops of black men than the population of black men in the city. Um, and one of the things that de Blasio said was like, look, I understand how this kind of systemic inequality works, even though I'm a white guy because I have a black son and I don't want him to be stopped by the police just because he's black. And then, you know, so what you've seen in New York is this mayor who has this incredibly personal connection to this question of unequal enforcement of the law and how it disadvantages people of color, who is essentially presiding over an administration over a mayoralty that is seeing things like, you know, white people who are standing too close together in, in lower Manhattan getting handed masks by police and black people in East New York being thrown to the ground. And it's really striking because, you know, again, the train follows the track. This is how this works. This is how this works because that's how it's built to work. It's very difficult to change the direction of the train if you just, if you, if you don't build another track. Well, here's a question. So we've talked a lot in our conversations about uh, grief, but something we haven't talked about is outrage. Have you noticed anything unusual about how outrage is being expressed right now and sort of whose outrage is being expressed right now? I mean, certainly if you're protesting the restrictions, then you're saying that they're not necessary and so you can go outside and protest. But if you want to protest how the government is handling the coronavirus, it's extremely difficult to do that because you can't go outside without risking uh, getting sick, even if you wear a mask. It's very difficult to do a socially distant protest. Right. So um, the only protests that are visible are ones that, by their <laughs> very right. like visibility, mean they don't agree with the restrictions. Yes. Uh, I think it's not, you know, while I wouldn't impute uh, a conscious motive on the part of these people, I do think that the sense that uh, to which like this is, you know, a problem for those people made it easier for people to think of the restrictions or the virus itself as someone else's problem that they should not have to pay for. And in, in my piece, I cite arguments over Wisconsin's stay-at-home law before the Wisconsin Supreme Court last week. And one of the things that was really striking to me was the Chief Justice said, you know, um, one of the, the government's attorney mentioned that there had been an outbreak in a meatpacking plant. 
and she said, but that, that, that was the meatpacking plant. The outbreak in that county wasn't regular folks. You know, the meatpacking industry has a disproportionately Hispanic workforce. Now, I don't think that necessarily she thinks that Hispanic people aren't regular folks, but she is making a distinction between the mm-hmm. workers who are working in, that con- in those conditions and the sort of, quote unquote, regular folks of the state. And I think that, you know, if you're already thinking that way, then it makes sense that she would think of the coronavirus as not really your problem. So why am I having to pay for it with orders that tell me to stay home or tell me I can't open my business? Right. I'm curious that you like have spent your career writing about the racial contract and writing about these patterns of discrimination and history repeating itself over and over and over again. A lot of your writing is pointing out just that, you know, hey, this isn't anything new. This is exactly how it always was. Um, I mean, this is a really basic question. Like, how do you avoid immobilizing despair? Writing about it. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, writing about it is one thing. The other thing is that when you're looking at history, there's always a, it, it always gives you a bit of perspective. And, you know, it would be absurd for me to allow myself to be immobilized with despair when, you know, my, my grandparents who lived in segregated Florida did not give in to despair when, mm-hmm. you know, if my parents who, you know, my grandparents brought to upstate New York when they were children because they didn't want them to go to segregated schools who grew up, uh, you know, who, who were adults before black people had the right to vote. Um, you know, I feel an obligation to the people who, put me in a position to where I'm writing about these things, I feel an obligation to them not to allow myself to become completely paralyzed. You know, everybody needs some time for themselves. I mean, one of the things that I like to tell people, particularly people who are struggling with depression right now, is like when you go back to the Civil War and you look at the Civil War, the three, to my mind, pivotal people who not only won the war, but helped build the country that would become an America that is much closer to its ide- the ideals of its founding than it was at the time were Frederick Douglass, Ulysses Grant, and Abraham Lincoln. And every single one of them struggled mightily with depression and mental health problems. So it's not, you know, it, it's no impediment to greatness. But, um, you know, as far as not losing yourself for, for the, the level of political power, for example, that uh, you know, people of color alone have um, is so much greater than it than it was. Uh, you know, when my parents were born and when my mother was being raised in in segregated Florida, that it's it's hard not to look at that and say, yes, some kind of progress is possible. It's very slow. It's very hard. It requires a lot of work because you have to build entirely new tracks to take the train to a different place, even in a time when you can't leave your house. Even in a time when you can't leave your house. Yeah. Um. Thank you, Adam. Yeah. Thank you for having me. How are your cats? My cats are having a good time. They, um, they're extremely spoiled by having their humans around all the time um, to nag for pets and attention. So they're doing great. It's a great um, time for pets. Yes, it's a good time for pets. Unless your pet like likes having you out of the house, in which case it's, it's not such a great. I've heard some, 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 some people who have pets were like, dude, when are you leaving? <laughs> Well, I'm glad you're with your with your happy pets, at least. Um, and thank you for talking us through this. Thank you for having me. 
This show was produced today by Alvin Melleth with help from Anna Waters and Jacqueline Landry. You can write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com. And um, hope everybody is taking care of themselves. Especially you. Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, maybe you can go for a walk or something. I don't know. I don't have any suggestions for you that I haven't already given you. But all right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, all right. Bye. Bye. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.